0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, Oliver goes inside the huddle with pianist Chris Reynolds, who reveals how he plans to be a change agent within the gay, white, male opera mafia. Plus, for podcast listeners only, Chris tells the story behind his custom body ink. And then, Monday Evening Quarterback returns when we review an animated version of the Magic Flute featuring a particularly forceful Tamino, plus two-minute drill. Hey, y'all, let's commit to producing a full ring cycle in the middle of the pandemic. Matt Cummings, we're going to start with you, actually. Tiger Speaks, what's going on?
2: We got breaking news today. Uh, Tiger Woods has broken his silence after a horrific car accident where he broke his right leg uh, last week, he, he had to have surgery and over the weekend at the, at the WGC Workday championship, a bunch of diff- of the different employees and golfers who were competing all dressed in his signature red golf shirt, black pants. And so he tweeted out his appreciation for that gesture today and we wish him the best hope he's doing well.
1: Weston Williams sitting this show out. Ashley Hardgrave, Russell Wilson, what's on your mind about Russell?
3: Uh, the fact that he might be coming to play for the Bears. This is very exciting for lots of reasons. Okay. So he's, he's at Seattle. There's a possibility he's going to get traded. He has said publicly that if he gets traded, he only wants to play for one of four franchises. Dallas, Las Vegas, New Orleans, or Chicago. So I'm really pulling for him to come to us because it would solve the decades long quarterback cluster uh, for uh, the Bears. Uh, also, it might mean halftime shows from Sierra because she'll have to stay here part time, and I would enjoy that too.
1: Wow, Dallas, you might have to fight us here in Chicago. Who is Sierra? Russell Wilson. Wilson. One two step,
4: Oliver. Sierra
3: oh, just... is a she. She is an a dance R and B sensation.
4: And is she involved with the gorgeous Russell Wilson?
3: She is. They are an upsettingly attractive couple. Uh, it's like it makes me angry how handsome they both are. One okay. of those.
1: Yes. All right. Let's talk some opera.
0: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
4: So earlier today, I had a conversation with Chris Reynolds, who is the current pianist in the ensemble of the Ryan Opera Center here at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I literally just met him today. Uh, As is wont to happen with me, you can probably find the exact moment in our interview where I begin to fall in love with him. He is such a smart guy, uh, really passionate about what he's doing as a musician, but also understanding his privilege and how he is going to be in a position at some point in his career to maybe affect some of the changes that we hope for uh, in the opera world in terms of who has power and who are the gatekeepers So I'm cheering him on. Uh, He's a very flamboyant musician in the best possible way. And uh, we'll start the interview with him talking about how he made the transition away from being a solo pianist towards what we call collaborative piano while he was at Juilliard and his road to becoming uh, one of the ensemble members of the Ryan Opera Center. But before we do, here is his solo piano transcription of the Dance of the Seven Veils from Richard Strauss's Zalome.
5: say is that there is between the, the solo pianists and the collaborative pianist a sort of like sharks and jets thing where you know the the solo pianists sort of look at the collaborative pianist as like oh they sold out the, so, the collaborative pianist at the solo pianist as oh they're delusional it's a Juilliard produces a very sort of weird dynamic between the two degrees and as someone who has done both degrees at a certain point I was you know very kind of whiplashed about what was the path I was supposed to be going down Um, and young artist programs. I had at a certain point developed in my head, this idea that they were sort of the place where pianists go. If pianists don't ever want to perform again They're, you know, they would stick you in basement level C and you would become like a living, breathing MIDI file (laughs) for singers to just, you know,
4: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Um, so I was like, Oh God, no, that's, that's not for me. Um, but then the realism of uh, having spent eight years at Juilliard and I'd run out of degree programs, so I had to, you know, man up and enter the real world. Came mm-hmm. up i like, well, you know, what do I actually want to do? And the answer was, I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> the answer is still kind of, you know, who knows, especially now with the pandemic, but I'd realized that, you know, talking to my teachers, they'd all say, well, you know, artist programs, they're not just if you want to spend the rest of your life in an opera house. They are easily the best way of just meeting all the best singers of your age and of your generation. And they're, regardless of what your ultimate career is, the best jumping off point to just learning how to operate in the real world under a much more carefully curated and controlled environment than you would get just you know freelancing in New York City Um, and the Ryan Center was essentially the program that I had my eye on mainly because of Craig Terry because I had worked with Craig for four summers leading up to that in Germany Um, and I really really liked Craig Um, I liked his sort of his humor his sense of musical partnership. Um, he would always come to this festival to do the cabaret night. It was always really fun music. Um, and I knew he was in charge of the Ryan Center and I knew that he was a actively performing pianist. Um, and so I figured correctly that this would be a place where I could go and have my interests considered not just as you know, a rep, but as a pianist, where I would actually get to be able to perform. I would have someone there encouraging me to perform, um, and I was right ultimately, which is great because really all I've done, ironically, despite the pandemic, since being at the Ryan Center, is you know record a new recital every two weeks. Um, yeah, so here I am a year and a half later at you know this amazing program, but. I would not have, not have guessed
6: it. Hmm.
4: I mean, for me, I think of pianists and, you know, scholars and coaches like Graham Johnson and Roger Vignoles and Irwin Gage and Jeffrey Parsons as like giants in the music world, you know, but obviously they are people that we think of as collaborative pianists and not as solo pianists. Um, Do you still have your eyes set on perhaps having a, separate solo piano career
6: oh no oh no okay
5: i (laughs) you know solo piano versus club the main difference and it's it's sort of sad that you only realize it's too late there is a value placed on age like with solo (laughs) piano if you're not 18 winning the van cliburn Mm -hmm. doing these things you've kind of aged out of uh, that opportune window of you know, getting there, whereas with collaborative piano it's kind of the opposite. It's like when I started auditioning for, you know, collaborative piano stuff at like Aspen, I was probably like 19 and everyone was like, oh, you're too young. No, we can't trust you. No, that's no, no, no.
6: Mm -hmm.
5: So it's very much the sort of the opposite, um, opposite dynamic of age valuing and solo piano. I know I'm already kind of, approaching that upper limit of prime age to enter the industry. Mm-hmm. And not gonna lie, it's like those first four years at Juilliard alone in a practice room eight hours a day practicing, you know, etudes is not, not the tea,
6: Did not. Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> I've realized that, you know, there's such a sort of, the two things appeal to very different parts of my personality. And I've realized in the ultimate sort of long run that being able to constantly make music with other people is much more what makes me happy. I have friends who love the being alone for eight hours a day in a practice room. And I love that for them, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just not, <laughs> ultimately not really my thing. And I still love playing solo music. I, I love practicing it. I love performing whatever I can. Um, my last WFMT recital was also a piano music, but Um, career-wise, it's definitely not something that I've ever really been drawn back
4: to to. Before we, um, well, I mean, because of the pandemic, I haven't actually had a chance to hear you as part of the ensemble in person yet. Um, but I get a sense about you from the available media that there is, uh, that you are highly individualistic and that you, um, your presence is known uh for better or for worse like it's hard to not notice you
0: uh
4: as the person sitting at the keys you know and that's not always a desirable quality um but i feel like now that we are in this time of things needing to be visually interesting Mm
0: -hmm. maybe
4: that is actually important right now Mm -hmm. um we were going to talk about this story uh about a pianist that you that has influenced you, uh, and I don't want to, you know, tip my hat too much, but or can you go ahead and let's talk about this person and uh, formative experience?
5: Yes. Well, um, I grew up in the great Saratoga Springs, New York, which is, um, as some people might know, the summer home of the Philadelphia Orchestra, my childhood orchestra, and every summer I would go to Spac to see the orchestra, and one of the of like season regulars back then was Jean-Yves Thibaudet, um, a great French pianist. And somehow all those summers, I would always get backstage as a kid to meet him because I think my mom knew whoever was in charge of you know the VIP backstage access. And Thibaudet was incredibly, not, like, I, I think I was sort of expecting like, oh, he would sign my program and then mm-hmm. say, like, go away. But um, No, he was incredibly nice and every single time would talk to us, like 20 minutes, show me pictures of his like Ferraris.
4: Ferraris? Um, Oh yeah,
5: yeah. Um, (laughs) I thought he
4: just collected ascots. I didn't know he collected (laughs) cars.
5: (laughs) Um, You know, and one of the things that really struck me about him being, you know, a young gay kid. I don't even, I mean, you know, ask any gay person, obviously the question of like, when did you know you were gay? It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I think at the time I didn't know I was gay, but you know, the, the seeds were germinating in my mind. And I, I sort of sensed something about him on stage. He would wear these beautiful, like custom Vivian Westwood suits with these like shiny, patterns on the shoulders and he would wear these
3: amazing
5: shoes and his hair was you know sort of boy band-esque you know, <laughs> contour and I loved that because I mean, you know I think I sort of was used to pianists showing up in the like coattails mm. in like a corpse just kind of like mm, Rachmaninoff and then
6: yeah.
5: um yeah so it was something very kind of like eye-opening to me about that like wow
6: that's like ooh,
5: cool. Because um, I was sort of only used to women, you know, like Sarah Chang showing up in her beautiful dress looking, you know, fabulous. Mm-hmm. I, I asked him about it once. I was like, well, like, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> to show up? And he's like, you know, I realized at a certain point that for men on stage, it is such so much more limited about what how they can choose to express themselves with what they wear. -hmm. Um, And at a certain point, he just decided to, you know, wear whatever he wanted. And over the years, that idea has sort of stuck with me and changed with me. And especially the older I've gotten and the more I've sort of come to terms with society and the ideas of heteronormativity. Um, And I've realized that, you know, performing is really hard. And it's, it's really hard emotionally, it's hard physically. And it's very difficult to sort of be on stage being as open and vulnerable as you want to be musically if you feel boxed in physically by what you're wearing. Because to me, what, what I wear is very much an expression of who I am. Like I, I'm very uh, in agreement with that, that RuPaul phrase, You know, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Hmm. Everything we do is kind of a, you know, gender is a performance. How I present myself at the grocery store is a performance. <laughs> I present felt in front of donors is a performance. You know, everything I put on my body is in some way me showing to the world how I want to be seen. And I realized that me going on stage in a tux, it's not me. It's That will never be me. That will never be how I want to present myself to the world. And I felt... It's, it's hard to sort of explain, but I felt sort of musically boxed in every time I would show up on stage in a tuxedo because it just felt like I wasn't being yeah to myself and how could I then be authentic musically? Um, so at Juilliard, I just started experimenting much more with like, what could I wear on stage before my t-shirt would say, hmm. <laughs> um, and it started becoming that I would start doing, you know, wardrobe changes at halftime and I would, you know, experiment with like bizarre looking blouses and cool shoes. Um, I've tried several times wearing heels on stage. The problem is that I'm too tall and the heels raise my legs so much that I can't actually fit underneath. <laughs> 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 um, so that that's canceled, I can't do that anymore. Um,
4: how tall are you? Because we can't tell on Zoom. Six foot one. Oh,
6: wow, okay. Uh,
5: but yeah, Thibode definitely was sort of that catalyst of like, you know, at the time I didn't really realize what it meant to be openly gay, openly queer as an artist performing for, you know, a culture that is funded primarily by a very kind of heteronormative.
4: That's that's actually the point. So, um, in a way, I feel like we're talking about um, like the news, like how we expect our journalists to be impartial. But we know that everybody is human and they have their opinions. And we know that like when we're watching Rachel Maddow, we're, we're who's kidding? We're not, we know we're watching Rachel Maddow, you know? But when we're watching like CNN, like. We also know we're sort of watching something that's left-leaning, you know? Yes. And I'd rather just be transparent. Like, what is this person's aesthetic? What is this person's point of view? Rather than pretend that they don't have one, you know?
5: I, yeah, it's, you know, I, I won't name names, but I, I was told something very, that really, I don't wanna say hurt me, but it made me angry in a very inspiring way. It inspired me through anger. Um, by a, a teacher I had at Juilliard once academic teacher um, where we had an assignment where we had to public speak a sort of autobiography and my autobiography you know mentioned I was gay and mentioned proud I am of that fact and this teacher said you know I don't I don't think you should mention that I think it's gonna maybe cause some people to not hire you so just just don't and that really got me thinking I was like you know why would i want to be hired or liked by someone who would hate me because i'm gay in the first place yeah i'd rather just be open about it from day one and then if they don't want to hire me then i would not want to work for them if they don't want to hire me because i'm gay so it's something i've realized that's like i would always much rather be you know open wearing you know the jazzed Vivian Westwood suits and have, you know, some people say, "Oh, I don't want to see him again." Then pretend, you know, that I'm this coattail wearing straight dude. Just- well, I just want to
4: say no. that it's not it's not a criticism of you, but it is a privilege of your generation to be able to be that way.
6: Oh, absolutely. Uh,
4: yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so we we're talking about this conservative art form have you had pushback from your uh, employers up till now? Um, we don't have to talk about which ones? I'm just curious to see, like, you know, if you're testing boundaries, you know.
5: Classical music is so weird because it is in this place right now where it's trying to appeal to the millennial. Kind of gen z audience which Mm -hmm. they know is much more left-leaning is much more concerned with social justice and these sort of things yet it's you know it's donor base whatever the opposite of that is (laughs) um and i think institutions are at a very tricky point where they have to be walking this line at least so they think of appealing to both of those crowds, the crowd that they want the money from and the crowd that they want the Instagram posts from. Mm-hmm. And I've found on several of jobs I've had that you know, they want me to be sharing stories on Instagram. They want me to be doing cool programming. They want me to do all of the left-leaning millennial woke stuff.
6: Mm-hmm. But
5: also they're like, "Oh, but don't, you know, don't be political because, you know, We're you know we're a nonprofit and we're you know we have conservative donors and we don't want them to you know to be scandalized by you mentioning Black Lives Matter you know these sort of things. So it's it's we like I have yet to work for an employer who is just a you know a full like oh if you you know show up and have a lisp you're fired. But I also have yet to work for an employer who has relinquished this desire to never burn any bridges with a conservative donor that may or may not withdraw their support because some young millennial you know sub-employee commented something on Instagram
4: yeah the Devo department is like at your performances like holding their breath like oh (laughs) yeah
6: exactly so
4: (laughs) so you are since you're talking about being gay and you present as a white cis male. Um, we've talked we talked about this before we started this interview about how your particular demographic seems to be uh, in a position in the opera community at this actually a powerful position traditionally, uh, which is funny because you know being a gay person in most other arenas might be a disadvantage but
5: But it's i without realizing it lucked out to like the one industry in the world where i am like like, apex like i have the most privilege of anyone um yeah it's it's really strange and it's kind of sad um but there is something i've realized that you know the entirety of the opera world is run by what i've uh Heard referred to as the the gay mafia, which I mean I I cannot say if there is a you know international conglomerate of Auburn CEOs meeting on you know Fire Island every year. <laughs> <laughs> Mikko
4: knows. Come on, you got yes. better taste on that. Yeah. <laughs>
5: um, but I sort of I started to realize this at a certain point, and it started to make sense because you know as we've talked about, there is definitely the this weird thing where classical music doesn't want flamboyantly gay people, but also like there's so many gay people in classical music. Um, And there is absolutely, whether or not anyone wants to talk about it openly, this idea that the positions in music, whether it's, you know, conductors, coaches, directors, anyone who is the sort of the gatekeeper of knowledge and power in music sort of has to be white because white people are very uncomfortable with non-white people becoming those gatekeepers of this western art form. I mean to the point that my first teacher at Juilliard was Korean and my middle name is Kenji which is Japanese um, because my mom is Japanese and I told him I was like you know I kind of want to add Kenji to my sort of official stage name and he said, as a Korean, he was like, "Don't do that. People won't take you seriously if they know you're Asian." Hmm. And it was like, "Wow, that's that's sad." Um, and I, over the years, I've realized, no, he's absolutely right. That the classical music world is so obsessed with centering whiteness and centering sort of straightness as the sort of gatekeeping power hold that they're very unwilling to sort of. Let anyone else be in power, which is also why you know, despite the fact that the gay mafia is the gay mafia, the gay mafia is also rather straight presenting. Um, which was another comment I got from a um, eminent British accompanist uh, who I had a very strange conversation once with, who was like, you know, it's like, oh well, we're we're both very privileged because we're gay, but. People think we're straight. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's so weird. It's all very weird. Um, and I've realized this, that, you know, the, the gay mafia makes it very easy for people like me to rise and to get hired because it's kind of like the reverse of somewhere like Fox News where, you know, they might hire these attractive female anchors because the people in power are these you know, kind of slobbery.
4: We call them sweaty old white guys. So
5: white guys who want the attractive women. Yeah, you know,
4: lots of legs and lots of hair. And yeah. It
5: became sort of the opposite in a lot of the op world, I think, where it's that the, the gay mafia wants the sort of good-looking other gay guys to be the other ones in their circle, which is a, it's kind of a shame because there's so many amazing people who do exactly what I do who are not gay white dudes.
4: Like Carrie Ann Matheson.
5: (laughs) I mean, I just, I mean, in my class at Junior, the collaborative piano class, there was me and one other gay white dude. Um, And then a lot of of women. I mean, collaborative piano is actually a lot of women. Mm. And all of the women in my class are absolutely overqualified to be in a lot of these positions. And they are going to have to fight 10 times harder to be taken seriously as, again, the gatekeepers of music, whatever yeah. Um, And that's a shame
4: to me. Okay, so I'm very grateful that you're on the show saying these things, because this is something I've said before on this platform and on another platform that there are a finite number of gay white men probably you know, in the tens or even less who are in positions of power at young artist programs, opera companies, and even universities, conservatories, who, you know, dub certain artists as being right for opera, and they make all the decisions. And that may be a reason why the American artist, uh, as technically proficient as they are, they're sort of homogenous in terms of what they have to offer. Yeah. You would agree with that?
5: Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a strange thing where to me, queerness as an umbrella term is all about being, you know, expressing exactly who you are on the inside, on the outside. And like, what better way is there to do that than music? Because music mm-hmm. is really just like very audible expression of who you are on the inside. And it's, it's strange to me that so many of the, you know, these queer people in power value a kind of heteronormativity in the actual music making. Because um, to me, that's kind of goes against the um, joy <laughs> of being a gay person that because, you know, when you're gay, you don't really automatically fit in with the kind of heteronormative box of society which to me makes it much more i think easy and comfortable to go on stage and just kind of be myself and make the music that i want to make
4: but because they're working within a patriarchal structure they think maybe this is how you can be gay and you know fit and they don't realize hey we all are here it's like you know, uprising, like the slaves uprising, I'm sorry to use that term, you know, like we could actually do this if we all agreed, you know?
5: Like it's, it's. I think it all just goes back to that donor problem of like, I don't know, I realistically, I do not know what would happen if a company just started doing exactly what they wanted to do, regardless Mm -hmm. of what their donors did. I I have no idea what would happen. I don't know if the donors would all revolt. I don't know if the donors would not even notice because they're never on social media. I don't know, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what would happen. But I think it's going to be a long time before we do know what would happen Um, because I don't imagine companies doing anything like that for a while, which is a shame because there's going to be a point where the donors are all going to die off. They're left with millennials who don't care because the companies never bothered to actually be open about these things. And...
4: Well... uh... (laughs) Well, on a good note, uh, what are you working on right now <laughs> 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 with Lyric or uh, independently that you would like to talk about before we run out of time over here?
5: Um, well, at Lyric, we have uh, the gala coming up, which we just filmed, you know, what's one of the beauties of the pandemic is we can we pre-film
6: mm-hmm.
5: every performance, which at first I was like, oh, we're gonna lose the magic of live audiences. But um, at the end of the day, what it ended up meaning is that everything perfect takes
4: for podcast podcast listeners. uh, Chris has these really beautiful script on his uh, forearms of Judy Garland and Maria Callas. Why those two?
5: Well, I mean, I have very personal connections with these two, not just, I think they're the two best singers. I, in in my mind, the two Mm -hmm. best singers, but to me, great, it's what I've been getting to this whole time, that you know, music is about who you are on the inside being released into the world. And to me, great singing is singing where the moment you turn on that radio, you know exactly who it is and you know exactly who they are. And there's something about the two of them where I can always feel when I listen to them, not just that I know immediately that it's them, but that I can feel like the totality of their lives poured out.
4: So I want you to to talk about Judy Garland for me, but I'm going to say what I think about Maria Callas, because I'm thinking about her a lot right now. Um, There are so many people who have read or written about her biography and like the personal events in her life and how you know, like certain performances, certain iconic live recordings uh, line up really well with things that happened to her weight gain or her weight loss and heartbroken and whatever. Um, And I I love knowing that stuff, but I also think she is actually a great singer and that she made decisions about phrases in uh, certain iconic roles that she sings. She made those decisions like when she was in her 20s and she spent every performance trying to execute those phrases. And some days she had it. Some days she just opened her mouth and what she wanted to do was right there and it was magic. And we know there's evidence of that. And then there are some days that she was having a really bad day and you hear early in the performance that she's testing, uh, Man, that's not working today, you know? And so she changes her mind about how she's gonna do things, but you know that she wants to go for it. And sometimes she says, Okay, I'm gonna risk this one phrase and see what happens. And then the voice breaks, you know? And you just become like so involved in her performances because you know what she's trying to go for. And when she gets it, it feels like, you know, a magical, magical thing, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, and then there are these uh, there are these ugly recordings um mm-hmm. that people here and maybe it's their first experience listening to her and like all these old gay queens like me, like I say, Oh my God, I love that recording so much. But then when somebody who's new to Maria Callas hears, like, you like that? Like, I don't get it, you know? And we have to remember, you have to show people the best of Maria Callas and leave out all the biography because people are not invested yet. Just show what's great when she was, you know, in her prime and like, let people discover her through those access points, you know?
5: I mean, it's the same thing with Judy that like, you know, I live for like, you know, Judy and Liza live at the London Palladium where Judy's like cracking her way through, <laughs> you know, now my love. And it's amazing to me. I'm like, yes. Um, because there's so much just like soul and mm-hmm. power in it, but that's definitely not what I would, you know, show someone. Although I'm sure yeah. there's not, there's very few people in the U S who have not heard Judy Garland at some point, you know, yeah. wizard of Oz or whatever. But yeah, when people tell me that Marie Callas is bad technique, I sit them down for 45 minutes and give them a PowerPoint. And, you know, (laughs) to me, technique, regardless of instrument or anything, is solely technique is what allows what's in here. I'm pointing Mm -hmm. to my head. I don't know if, you know, seeing. It it allows what's in here to become manifest in the world. It's why when people say like, Oh, it's good to work on musicality but not technique or vice versa i say no because the two have to work together if you have no ideas going on in here but amazing technique you're not manifesting anything it's like cool you can play scales but if you have no ideas your technique has been developed for for not and if you have amazing musical ideas but no technique no one's ever going to know what your amazing musical ideas are because you're never going to be able to actually demonstrate them i have amazing musical ideas about how i think the Dvorak cello concerto should go. No Mm. one's ever going to know them because I have no idea how to play the cello. I can't, you know, show them on the cello. Um, In that way, with Marie Callas, you know at all times every single musical intention that she is going for. Even if it doesn't work, you can always tell what she's going for. If she cracks on it, she'll, as you say, she'll kind of start to, you know, GPS kind of reroute.
6: Yeah.
5: (laughs) Um, But to me, it's like you can take... Any recording of Marie Callas, and you can almost do a dictation of all of her phrasing, of each note growing or diminishing, yeah. last note exactly where in the phrase she's going, all of her articulations, because she has such clear musical ideas, mm-hmm. and she's physically able to execute every single one of them exactly as she
6: wants in her mind.
4: And she actually follows the markings that are in the score, and she like,
6: does. oh, I'm going to plug a book.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Well, he just got up to go I get a book. Wrote this
5: book. <laughs> this book. Okay. It's at Juilliard. Uh, it's when she gave all these master classes. Yeah. Someone went through and typed up every single one with okay. in the score. Um, and you can see from this book, she really cares what the composer wrote. If if you know, yeah. if composer wrote a staccato. If students do a staccato. She would say, "Why do you not do a staccato? Composer wrote a staccato." And you really see from this, it's like you know, she's living proof that you can do exactly what the composer wanted and still be yourself.
4: And people will think that you're such a highly individual artist and you're actually fine.
5: Just follow the score. (laughs) Okay,
4: so here's our little playlist moment. Uh, I'm going to pick two Maria Callas moments. Mm -hmm. uh, And while I'm describing mine, you can think of yours.
0: Yes. Uh,
4: And then I'd also like you to pick uh, two Judy Garland moments, uh, one that maybe shows Judy in her prime and like just you know, blowing us all off the stage, and then one maybe that shows her vulnerability, but um, you know, trying to go for something very artistic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because I've been listening to a lot, this is easy for me. Uh, I want to choose the Lisbon Traviata, um, with Alfredo kraus I think the conductor is Guione, and the Amami Alfredo moment, uh, where she's writing the letter, Dami tu to Forza o cello Like, you know, she has she gives almost every color that's mm-hmm. available to her in just these three minutes of music. Uh, where she's writing the letter and then where the servant comes in and suddenly she becomes almost stern with with anina uh and then she goes back to writing the letter to alfredo and you hear that limpid you know tragic quality come in and then she gets caught by alfredo writing the letter and she try to puts on a happy face and then suddenly the emotion starts coming out <laughs> mm-hmm. and um you know she sings that big phrase mm-hmm. Uh, the Ama mi Alfredo, and mm-hmm. she takes a breath. I mean, she later on in her career, she began to do that in the middle of the Ama mi Alfredo. She cuts it off, but mm-hmm. she does it so that she can put as much steel into her sound for that big note with the orchestra swelling. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's definitely, as Leontine Price would say, you know, cutting a piece off the salami. Every time she went for that, she sacrificed some of her vocal capital mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of the moment. And it's just, it's just so generous, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, you feel it. You really feel, even whatever, fifty plus years later, sixty years later, you feel that yep. emotion. I also want to go to the um, Norma she recorded under Victor Gui, another live performance. I think Abe Stignani was the Adelgiza and the Non Tremare. Uh, ah, non trema. And then she goes for that Rage High C, and sometimes that C was frayed, you know. She always went for it, but in this particular one, oof, <laughs> it's like a laser coming through and you just feel it like you just had like an arrow stuck between your eyes, you know? So those are my two oh. college moments. I know them very well because I was just listening to them yesterday. <laughs> How about for you?
6: Uh,
5: I mean, I think the, the two things that most impacted me, um, my favorite recording of her hands down is 1957 Ana Bolena at La Scala. It's my favorite Bel Canto opera. So already I was sort of, you know, went into it, but she does not take the high note at the end she does not go up to the e-flat at the end of the opera in and, topia
4: Niqua, in the yeah. in the couple okay
5: no and she can i mean there's you know the same year she can take the e-flats and plenty of other stuff oh. It's not like she lost her her top yet um and i wondered for a while i was thinking, like why why doesn't she do that but when you listen to the way that she holds this b-flat You know, she she goes, you know, B-flat and then just goes back down to the Mm -hmm. E-flat and hoppers over. She packs more complex emotion into just this one B-flat that she holds for so long than I think she ever even put into a single, you know, above the staff note Mm -hmm. in any other recording. And that it was sort of proof to me that it's like, no, it's not about the high note. It's about the emotion that you put into the note. Because I swear, every time I hear that recording and I hear that B flat, it is like the emotional summation of all of the like pain, the anger, the frustration, but also the sort of resignation that Anna Bolina feels in that moment. Just all loaded into one single note. And it's not even like the highest known in the stratosphere because a lot of sopranos it's like their kind of default is they just sing a high E flat and that takes care of
4: yeah that provides the drama for people you know like the drama
5: is just the, yeah, the
4: it's fan service yeah.
5: it. but to have the ability to on a B flat pack the summation of an entire character is like beyond me how it's possible <laughs> see the other moment and this was very sort of personal to me growing up was I mean, one of the first recordings i heard of her was on youtube her um la mama morta from la scala in 55 so it's the sort of the crackly live recording not her you know, fancy studio recording and there's one big difference between the the live recording and the studio recording studio recording on the the final Two notes when she sings "La Uh it's an F sharp and a G, I believe. In the studio, she does not use chest voice. She does her, you know, well coordinated kind of just mix. Licks,
6: yeah. Um,
5: live recording though, she fully belts. Yeah. Those last two notes. I mean, it's like cavernous monster. <laughs> and you know that aria. The first time I heard it, I was like, you know, sixteen gay, alone, kind of sad in high school. The only gay person out mm-hmm. for 50 miles. And
4: wearing, wearing your heels and getting yeah. stuck underneath the piano. <laughs> and
5: there was something about the first time I heard that, listening to those words, because you know the second half that Aria, she takes sort of takes on the this angel, mm-hmm. you know, singing, you know, I am life, I am love, I am oblivion, I will sort of, take your sorrows and all, all this stuff was so meaningful to me. And then the way that she, at the very end, just basically like screams in her chest, which to me, you know, the chest voice is the most sort of expressive, soulful part of a woman's voice. We it's should, like, we're not supposed to
4: yeah. see it. It's like, a, it's, it's true vulnerability, you know?
5: It's she just screams in her chest, the words like, you know, I am love. I mean, mm-hmm. that... I'm pretty sure just in two notes took me out of any gay teenage depression I had for the remainder of high school. So, like, I mean, that recording to me is kind of the pinnacle of that recording to show people because she sounds amazing. I mean, it's one of these times where she makes it through the whole thing. No cracks, no one, no no nothing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that recording. 55 Wascala. 55 That was that was that was the year <laughs>
6: Okay. and
4: can you do you, I know we're, we're so out of time I don't know if we're able to fit this in but do you have uh, some Judy Garland moments that sort yes, of do the same of, thing
5: two quick Judy Garland moments okay. um, her at the height of her power yeah. uh, on her show I mean a lot of her best stuff is on her show the Judy Garland mm-hmm. show her singing um, um, come rain or come shine
6: mm-hmm.
5: on the Judy Garland show where she sings it so powerfully that literally you can see it on YouTube after the last note you can see her go huh and says like, oh my god because she is so shocked at how well she just sung she literally says oh my god okay. that recording incredible And then in terms of I think that this was the other flip side, I believe this is also on the Judy Garland show, her singing Old Man River, hmm. where it's a very, very kind of exposed kind of naked performance is very subdued for a lot of it. And then she really flips at the end when she says, I think it's, um, I'm weary, I'm sick of trying, I'm tired of living but scared of dying. Hmm. I think that like awakened something in her because I think it was very apt for how she was feeling in mm-hmm. her own life. And she just like unleashes sort of the final part of the song um, and it's, the camera is so close to her and you really, you see all of the kind of facial ticks, because I really feel like with Judy Garland, she wasn't ever acting. She was just, like she was, she was the song as she's saying, and you can see as she's saying these such painful words that meant so much to her, how it just transforms her. Um, and I love that. Yeah, so those are my two. My
4: Chris Kenji <laughs> Reynolds, um, I know I just met you like 50 minutes ago, but I know that I love you already. You're incredible.
6: Thank you. You too. I am sick of
0: trying. I'm tired. Ty-
4: So that gala is called Magical Music Around the World. It premieres on March 21st. Uh, It's directed by Craig Terry and features the singers of the Ryan Opera Center and pianist Chris Reynolds.
0: Pass or fail. Here's Monday Evening Quarterback.
1: Ah, oh, man, it's been a while since we've done Monday evening quarterback on the show. Before we get to that, a little more sports talk. Ashley Hargrave. Uh oh. Zlatan Ibrahimovic causing problems.
3: oh ibra uh in a move that surprises no one um a white swedish soccer player has been critical of a black american basketball player's political activism oh by the way it's lebron james so yes zlatra ibrahimovic who is ibra for short uh he plays over in uh across the pond and he's basically kind of popped off in an interview which is shocking considering that he always talks about himself in third person uh and basically said i don't do politics uh he mentions lebron and he says do what you're good at do the category, you do. I play football because I'm good at playing football. And to no one's surprise, LeBron is fully unbothered by this. And basically, <laughs> once he found out, because of course, it was like a huge news story for like a 10 minute you know window on ESPN. And basically he said, I preach about my people. I preach about equality. Um, I do this because I was part of this community at one point and they don't have a voice and now I get to be their voice. Basically, in the words of Damien in Mean Girls, uh, she doesn't even go here. So, like, Ibra, sit down.
1: Don't, don't talk about this. Ibra is <laughs> like, he's like the character on Joe Lasso, if you've been watching that show. Ted you? Lasso? you mean
4: Ted Lasso? Ted,
1: Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso. Ted Lasso. That's Clearly, it. I've been paying attention, but I am watching it. The guy with, like, the beard. He, he's sort of that coach. attitude. Not coach, no, the player with the beard. The The, the captain? The captain of the team. The of the team. Oh, he's like okay. him, except that character has a heart monday evening quarterback it's been a while matt cummings gonna set it up for us
2: we're coming back in style if there were ever a time <laughs> to resurrect monday evening quarterback it is for the staple of the cummings family household in my childhood which is the magic flute but make it thundercats <laughs> uh, this was an animated Saturday morning cartoons adaptation of the Magic Flute that I used to rent from Blockbuster on VHS all the time, that has like a bizarrely all-star cast of voice actors, including Mark Hamill, the uh, Luke Skywalker as Prince Tamino, in a semi-reunion with Star Wars half sister Jolie Fisher, as Prince. Panina, noted Shakespearean actress and Oscar nominee Samantha Egger as the Queen of the Night, and Michael York from Cabaret, Austin Powers, and others as Sarastro. Just Utterly bananas.
3: It's so great. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, with where this comes from, so there were a series of uh, Saturday morning cartoons that came on. They were called the ABC Weekend Special. And they were on, you know, they started in like the late 70s and they went, you know, for 20 years into like the mid 90s. So this was a two-parter. Uh, it went over two different Saturdays. In with a cliffhanger. With a cliffhanger. Uh, and then a previously on section at the beginning of part two. Uh, and this all happened in April and May of 1994 during season six of ABC's weekend
2: special. But so they take the magic flute and adapt it liberally. The three the three ladies become three fairies, one of whom is 2000 years older than the other two. Uh <laughs> I- <laughs>
3: My, my exact. I was telling the gentleman before we started that I I was taking stream of consciousness notes uh, as I was watching this this film, and I basically just put for the three lady fairies, uh, why are two dressed like hooker elves at a ren fair and one is dressed like Mrs. Garrett from The Facts of Life?
2: Incredibly accurate, just like I promise you, so accurate. Papageno is a literal bird man, but what <laughs> is like my Chester's
3: fried chicken bird man? <laughs> like yeah, he's a rooster,
1: and the whole thing is like forty three minutes long plus commercials, right?
2: But um, in those 43 minutes, they find time to work quite a few motives from, motifs even, from the magic flute into oh, I... midified musical numbers. <laughs> yeah, um, the best one being the Queen of the Night aria, uh, which is transposed down two octaves <laughs> and, and starts with the Queen of the Night singing the the original melody. And then at the high note part, they switch and the midi flutes play the high notes and she sings like the bass the, she sings, like, the cello line.
3: <laughs> it's like Queen of the Contralto Night. Like, it's <laughs> amazing.
0: I'll be avenged.
2: There's it's also amazing. a Despilledness duet where they fall in love on the bed. There is at least one like very obvious Star Wars reference, where Mark Hamill's character like takes off his cape with Jolie Fisher and like swings over the stormtroopers using a chandelier. Um, just <laughs> hijinks galore.
3: <laughs> but what is the text right there? It's super gross and has weird sexual overtones. So Tamino is holding on to Pamina. <laughs> he flings his cape over and grabs the chandelier to get them out of there. And he looks at her and he goes. I've always wanted to do this. And then she goes, me too. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> it's horrifying.
0: At last, I see your face so fair. A beauty that's beyond compare. Tell me now, my hero. Come, let's flee this place. And I will protect you from all life's harms Yes, you will protect me with your magic charms Pamina, tell me now. So
2: There are multiple action sequences in the, also in this version. Pamina is secretly Sarastro's daughter and not the Queen of the Knights, which frankly oh, yeah. makes more sense than <laughs>
3: it in the. It kind of does actually. I was like, I don't remember this, and then I was like, oh, because it's not part of the offer, but it's kind of a better take.
1: Those folks at ABC improved on Chickenator. It's fantastic. the The, the singing style too is like straight like mt belt is it not really it's
2: like i mean it's not even mt we're talking about like pop tracks with midi backgrounds
3: yeah it's it's as if the golden age listened to a lot of late 80s early 90s top 40 like that's what it sounds like
2: like a celine dion demo track
3: Yes, there we go. That's that's good. Um, I also love that they uh, during the aforementioned Buildness love duet, uh, where where they somehow rhyme. Uh, Pamina sings "My Hero," like and m- rhymes it with Tamino, and I was like, "This is great!" I Mazel for everybody. Close enough. Wonderful. I, <laughs> I
1: watched it. I watched it with the family on a little uh, uh, evening family TV, and uh, so I have a third grader and a fifth grader. The third grader, uh, the fifth grader, I said, so what do you think? And he says, this is so (laughs) uncanon.
2: He's got, that's actually a great word. (laughs) He's got discerning
1: taste. (laughs) Very, very, very (laughs) discerning. There's also a bizarre scene in which um, Tamino is in some sort of an inn and there's people drinking and the Queen of the Night shows up and he says, wait a second. The Queen of the Night doesn't meet Tamino in a bar? Yes. My third grader, when I asked her how she thought it was going to end, she was like, we all know it's going to end with true love's kiss. One, duh, two, yuck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She said true love's kiss? (laughs) Little did she know that it was going to be not the true love's kiss you were expecting. Stay tuned. It's very, oh,
1: very. That's very, very true. Well, the link- is it
4: a Papageno Tamino kiss? I, Oliver, I didn't see you're it.
1: spoiling yeah. the opera for <laughs> everyone. I
3: listen. First of all, it's you know. Are there some weirdly overt sexual overtones? Yes. Is there someone who is obviously a homosexual, even though they don't actually say it? Absolutely. I mean
2: And it's not even Michael York this
0: time.
3: (laughs) No, it's not Michael York. It's freaking monoscetose. Like I said, monastote is straight and after Pamina in the same way that Jafar was after Princess Jasmine in Aladdin. Like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it.
1: (laughs) Well, you can stream it for free. We have a link on our website, OperaboxScore.com. It'll take you back to nineteen ninety four. Here's our call to action. Take a look, watch it, let us know what you think. Write into us, operaboxcore gmail.com. And if you do, I'm gonna send you one of our bespoke opera box score beer mats so that you too can have a drink just like the Queen of the Night and Tamino in that <laughs> bar. Two-minute drill coming up now.
6: This
0: just in the two-minute drill. All
1: right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week.
4: The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra has found a new ally in its union negotiation fight. The Wagner Society of New York presented the Anton Seidel Award to the group en masse with a $5,000 donation to help the unemployed performers. Both the Vienna and Munich Philharmonics have also expressed
2: solidarity with the Met musicians. The world is watching, reads the Vienna Phil statement, The Met's global reputation and the cultural landscape of New York City would be devastated by the loss of artists of this caliber. The orchestra hosts some of the best players in the world.
3: Meanwhile, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts has announced an initiative to create 10 outdoor performance and rehearsal spaces in New York City. The project, titled Restart Stages, hopes to revitalize the performing arts and the New York cultural scene following the devastation of the pandemic.
1: The Vienna State Opera has shifted its focus from arias to paintings, welcoming visitors on free guided tours while Austrian theaters remain closed due to the pandemic. The opera collected nearly 4,500 euros in donations during the first weekend of guided visits. A opera representative said, quote, the important thing is that people remember the opera and say, I want to go back for a performance.
4: American composer and mezzo-soprano Lisa Nair will launch the One Voice Micro Opera Festival. The project includes contributions from Margaret O'Connell, Hugo Vera, Audrey Yoder, and friend of the show, Zach Finkelstein. Traditional opera will likely be one of the last performance forms that will be safe to return to because of the performing forces and the super spreader nature of singing, said Nair. While I couldn't fix the canceled gigs or the income loss all on my own, I did realize we could work together to channel their talents and connect them with audiences. While some may turn to micro festivals, the
2: English National Opera is trying a macro approach to staging pandemic productions. The company plans to stage all four operas of the ring cycle over five years, rehearsing with its cast in COVID-safe bubbles before opening with Divalkyre in the fall.
4: Writing for The Observer, friend of the show Harry Rose has reviewed Sonia Jancheva's Metropolitan Opera Stars in Concert Recital, and found both the performance and repertoire less than ideal. He writes, It's an unflattering and unfair truth that the repercussions for thwarting the Met's star-making algorithm ultimately reflect infinitely more on the singer than the institution. There is still time for Janciva to emerge from it unscathed or even bolstered.
3: According to middleclassartist.com, Brigham Young University has figured out how to make singing in a chorus safe. The choral conducting and ensemble's division did their homework and concluded that live rehearsals with proper safeguards could be conducted with acceptable risk. According to the program directors, no known cases of COVID-19 have been traced back to the exposure in music ensembles.
2: Tulsa Opera will commemorate the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre with Greenwood Overcomes. The showcase will feature works by over a dozen black composers and will include no less than four world premieres performed by multiple black artists, including Leona Mitchell, Denise Graves, Noah Stewart, and pianist Howard Watkins. The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre gouged an ugly and enduring scar into the heart of Tulsa, Oklahoma and America, said artistic director Tobias Picker. Greenwood Overcomes will be performed for a limited live audience on May
3: 1st. A Washington high school has found an inventive and a little bit hilarious way for its students to make music in pandemic times. Wenatchee High School in Washington State has provided its students with individual pop-up tents for band rehearsals. Each student is zipped into their own pop-up tent with their instrument six feet from other band members. We here at OBS fully endorse this method as a way for opera to return because who doesn't want to see Vittorio Grigolo in a tiny tent? <laughs>
1: Tent. It was a busy weekend for friend of the show, Come On Marat. After starring with Angela Brown in Opera from a Sister's Point of View for Florida Grand Opera, Marat was the second place winner of the Rochester Oratorio Society's International Vocal Competition. The winners of the 2020 and 2021 competitions will appear in a showcase together May 1st. They include another friend of the show, mezzo soprano Kara Dugan. Yeah, that's the old OBS bump for you. Right, James Dara? And now, Yellow Cards, this week.
2: USA, Boston University's Tanglewood Institute, will go on virtually. BUTI from Anywhere 2021 will continue to train young instrumentalists, singers, and composers online.
3: Also USA, Utah Opera and Utah Symphony plan to resume live performances on March 25th. All concerts will be shortened and include social distancing, face coverings, fewer musicians, and less frequent performances.
4: That's three cards for the USA. The Glimmerglass Festival will return this summer, but will be held outdoors on the lawns of the festival grounds. This week's red cards!
1: Germany, Komische Opera Berlin has cancelled all performances until May 1st.
2: France, Opéra National de Paris, has cancelled all performances up until April 5th, including the AIDA slated for Opera Bastille. No triumphal march for this one.
3: USA! Cincinnati Opera is moving to plan B, canceling its indoor operas for the rest of 21. The company plans to continue with the season in some capacity, so look forward to that in the yellow card section in late March.
2: Exit stage right. Voice teacher and soprano Florence Birdwell has died at the age of 96. Birdwell taught aspiring opera and musical theater singers at Oklahoma City University from 1946 to 2013, including such now-famous performers as Kelly O'Hara and
4: Kristen Chenoweth. Mexican soprano Violeta Davalos Lara has died at the age of 52. After her debut in 1990 at the age of 19, Lara went on to perform major operas and many zarzuelas, including in the world premieres of Ambrosio by José Antonio Guzmán, Alicia y Brindis, Por un Milenio by Federico Ibarra, and Ide Ildegonda by Melesio Morales.
1: American bass baritone Antoine Hodge has died of COVID-19 at the age of only 38. Hodge had sung as a chorister and soloist at the Met and 14 other companies across the US.
3: American soprano Chelsea Miller has died of cancer. An up-and-coming singer, Melier was a 2014 regional finalist of the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions and sang a number of opera companies across the United States, especially Opera Memphis.
4: And on this day, March 1st, it was the premiere in 1620 of Monteverdi's Andromeda in Mantua for the carnival season, and that opera is now lost. In 1743, it was the first performance of Handel's oratorio, Samson, in London. In 1851, Severio Mercadante's Medea premiered in Naples at the Teatro San Carlo. In 1910, it was the first performance of Debussy's L'Enfant Prodigue in Covent Garden. In 1919, the Vienna State Opera went on strike, protesting the hiring of Richard Strauss, saying he was paid too much and would produce only his own material. You should be so lucky. In 1927, it was the birth of soprano Lucine Amara in Connecticut. In 1950, John Carlo Menotti's opera The Council premiered at the Schubert Theater, and it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for music. In 1954, it was the birth of American mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, My goddess. In 1959, birth of American composer Laura Kartman. In 1962, it was the birth of Russian soprano Galina Gorchakova. And Italian composer Ildebrando Pizzetti had two operas premiering on this day, Assassino nella Cattedrale in 1958 and Clittenestra in 1965. Both operas opened at La Scala.
1: And that's your two-minute drill.
4: Einhard Lieberson singing mitra di Dona elvira's aria from don giovanni from that gorgeous peter sellers production which has the perry brothers as uh don giovanni and leporello one of the first operas i ever saw um because it was on tv and i remember being so titillated by just opera in general but also by two gorgeous black men in their tidy whities. That is an image I will never forget. You had the sellers, Don Giovanni.
2: I had the ABC magic flute. You know, we're basically <laughs> the same person.
1: The uh, exit stage right column, sadly long this week on the show.
3: Yeah, um, and I wanted to just. Take a moment to talk to some of the sort of younger singer folk out in the world uh, about Antoine and Chelsea and losing them both in the same week. I had a lot of friends that sang with one or both of them. Uh, And I'm pretty sure each one of us is at least, you know, no more than one degree away from one or both of these folks. Um, And there's, you know... There's a sadness when we lose like a singing legend that is older and has lived a really long and full life. But there's, at least for me, there's like an extra heartache when you lose these wonderful humans when they're really young and full of potential and you lose these wonderful humans. You also think about the music they didn't get to make. Uh, Antoine was last at the Met in their porgy during the 1920 season. Um, so for all of you that are mourning Antoine and Chelsea, uh, my heart's with you.
1: And it sounds like the Met is going to dedicate an upcoming performance of Porgy to Antoine. Speaking of the Met, uh, Matt Cummings apparently we found a solution to fix the orchestra's problems.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, they got that $5,000 grant, which is whatever. But the real, (laughs) I mean, the real solution is more open letters, people. (laughs) Keep writing them. Keep posting them. The more open letters, the better. Vienna Phil Munich you totally know what <laughs> arts administration is like in the United States speak your truth guys I mean it's I solidarity is better than nothing but yeah it's only by that much <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah Ashley Hardgrave Lincoln Center look are they causing more problems or are they finding solutions
3: no, they're doing great things. Uh, they're doing this restart program, which is going to open up all of these different outdoor venues across uh, New York City. And they're getting a little help uh, from a Greek shipping heir. Uh, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation is the uh, the big... You say bag. George
4: Soros? Ah, uh-huh,
3: if only. Uh, no, so Stavros Niarchos is like a gazillionaire Greek shipping heir uh, who is also known in some circles because his son at one point was engaged to Paris Hilton. At any rate, he's the one that's helping fund this whole like open stages thing that's happening across New York City in April. And it's it's really cool because they're doing a bunch of multicultural organizations as partners with this. So there's going to be a cabaret stage. I think it's going to be on like the Hearst uh, platform, whatever that's called. So it's, it's, it's really going to be a nice way to just kickstart however we can an outdoor cultural scene and manhattan in april is the weather's decent so i it's it's one more ray of hope and if we can just keep getting those rays i'll be very happy
1: maybe we should just get a huge like shipping boat and put it in the east river and just divide it up into different stages
3: stavros has those i bet we could borrow one that would be that would be cool.
2: opera on the barge up on the barge. Do Ilta Barro.
1: There we go. Ilta Tabarro. Billy right? Budd would be part of that season, probably. The uh, Ring Cycle comes to English National Opera as a co-production with the Met as well. I, I am scratching my head about this. I... First of all, let me say Richard Jones, who is at the head of this production, one of my all-time favorite directors probably not shared by the panel, maybe I'm wrong, Uh, would die to see anything that that man directs. Uh, Over at ENO, Annalise Miskimmon, who's the uh, artistic director, been there a year or two, possibly three years. She basically said, it's now or never in terms of programming this piece, and went on to say, look, the argument is that in times of great change, art has always been there for us. We take risks. We d- we do big things. This s- certainly seems like a big risk, and I'm trying to figure out if it's foolhardy or not.
2: I mean, I certainly hope it's not another Lepage ring that is much heralded and um not much beloved.
3: But, I mean, points for boldness, though. Yeah, you know, points for points for giving people something to look forward to. I. I lean towards foolhardy, but I wonder if that's just my cynical, negative gut reaction. Um, but we'll we'll see. Well, I
1: think you have to look at the timeline on this as well, right? Like, you don't just decide to do the ring cycle on on a Monday in March. Clearly, yeah. they would have had to have made this decision when Miss Kimmon came to the helm of Eno, was talking to the met So this is this is in the before times we're talking about. So the real decision was like, are we going to pull the plug on this? Or are we going to double down and are we going to go ahead and, and do it?
4: But we're not talking about the Lepage production and, you know, what did we lose financially to have that production and do gimmicks ever work? Has there ever been a gimmick like the machine that has worked in opera that has made the opera better and that has changed people's idea about an opera, you know? I well, feel like I mean, the fan, I feel like the fan base for the ring is you know dedicated specific. yeah and they're dedicated <laughs> enough to see a production no matter what and I feel like the machine was an effort to make the ring more accessible and to get new audiences to come see it because of the machine but did they they never really got it to work that well and I remember it was dangerous when they first started it people were like falling off it certainly
2: like was never able to do anything like look, what look, the uh
1: publicity So robert lapage production taught us what we already know now in this pandemic is that the art is only as good as the technology which presents it
3: right get the sharpie george get the sharpie make your point
1: there we go i gonna get the sharpie out the art <laughs> is only as good as the technology that presents it right we're doing shows live streaming digital films right but if the tech sucks we cannot get to the heart of the story to the narrative to that personal connection that was the problem with the roberta lapage ring richard jones will not make that same mistake if you've seen his work he will not make that same mistake and i don't think eno is going to let him make that same mistake and frankly i don't think the met is going to make him make that same mistake as well we are at the beginning of a five year journey here on this production very excited to see you know, if this ends in tears or not. Looking at, um, uh, on this day, I was surprised to see that like three of those pieces, two of which I've directed and one of which I have a connection to, right? (laughs) Drink more than once. uh, Everybody's direct, everyone's directed the console. That's, that's no big deal. Uh, Debussy's L'Enfant Prodigue, which is, it's an oratorio, really totally nutty piece. And Merica Dante I just did a, a selection from Idue Figaro by Merica Dante. that old chestnut.
0: Good call, bad call on opera box score. We're
1: going to wrap the show up. Uh, Oliver Camacho, good calls, bad calls? What do you got for
4: us? Okay, so one musical good call, and I hope, Weston, you can include this in the show. Uh, I can get uh, Jonathan McCulloch to write us a press release, but I don't know if I can get Aha to write us a press release. Uh, I mean uh, a release form um, Jonathan <laughs> McCulloch did his own I love where you're going with this guy. Cover on Take On Me with acoustic guitar I assume he's accompanying himself uh, Let's take a listen to it It is so so sweet
0: i am be coming for your love Okay
4: Probably for the podcast only. And my other good call is Josh O'Connor in a tuxedo, which is my new Kryptonite. My new sexual (laughs) orientation. (laughs) He looked so good. And like, it was such a weird show last night. There were lots of like bumpy moments. And like Daniel Kaluuya was like on mute for his acceptance speech, and it was like, oh, embarrassing. And Catherine O'Hara, who I love, she was trying to do a bit. I think she was trying to do a bit. Wait,
1: you're saying that people in the TV industry screwed it up on Zoom?
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's the Golden Globes, though. So, like, the Emmys were much smoother from uh, last year. But anyway, um, they had to live up to their wild card reputation
2: somehow. (laughs)
3: Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like, the the Golden Globes are always, like, the mulligan anyway, because they're run by the HFPA. And it's
2: usually there's... just a big drink and dinner party.
3: Yeah, well, and that's the thing that dawned on me as I was looking at, uh, at some of the highlights and looking at the broadcast, is that I forgot how... First of all, the Golden Globes is my favorite of the award shows, because I love drunk celebrities who are uninhibited, um, but it, it dawned on me that... Two and a half hours of that three and a half hour broadcast is them doing filler with celebrities that are talking to each other about are in mm-hmm. the same room. So it was boring AF because you didn't have those little moments of candor. So Ashley, we'll
1: is this also your good call?
3: It's my good call. I also have a bad one. We'll get we'll get to that.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. Take the floor.
3: Oh lordy. Um. So in this uh, closing of Black History Month, uh, we've had a lot of folks that have really done. Right by the community and to help raise awareness uh, of the community and the art in that community. Um, Oberlin is, at least this week, not one of those folks. Um, it's been talked about in a lot of singer circles and musician circles. You're probably going to be sick of hearing about it by the time the show drops. But there was a concert poster that was released uh, for Oberlin's celebration of Black artistry. And there were five headshots on the poster. Guess how many of those artists were black? Guess how many of those artists were white? I understand that there are good intentions, but the optics of this is, is really, really poor. And I'm, I, I shuddered when I saw it and I'm a little embarrassed. And I hope, I hope these things don't keep happening because it seems like it's two steps forward, one step back.
4: Well, it just, in their defense, they are uh, a pretty diverse student body. And they That's did what do it. even weirder. Yeah. yeah. And they did a, a series of Black History Month concerts. And I think this was like the last one. And they just didn't have anybody to just take a look at that flyer or that it was like clearly a digital announcement to say mm, something's off about this, you know? They could have put the images of the composers they were featuring William Grant, still, uh, the Chevalier, Joseph uh, the Saint George, uh, Joseph Boulogne. And uh somebody else, I forget who was in that concert. Um they Jeffrey should have, Mumford. They should have put images of those people instead of the five very white artists. They're not even good pictures of these artists. So.
3: it's it's like Crackerfest 2021. And I know <laughs> yeah. these guys are great, but like just list the names if that's yeah. the case. The optics of it. Like it's just yeah. a bad
1: Absolutely. Choice. Matt Absolutely. Cummings. We will close
2: uh on a high note after that which is a follow-up to a story that we talked about earlier this fall about the uh, national negro opera house in my hometown of pittsburgh which was named a uh, a landmark back in september but is pretty run down and needs a good bit of investment to keep it from being demolished uh but there is a, a write-up in the pittsburgh post-gazette that we will share on our website of the woman uh Jeanette solomon who bought the mansion where the company took place and is not saying die. She is, she started a, a GoFundMe or, a, a, or a different kind of fundraiser in order to make up the money to restore the house to its glory and just make sure that this history is commemorated, celebrated and known to everyone in Pittsburgh. And we applaud her for it.
1: That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us at operaboxcore at gmail.com. Get yourself a coaster. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is illegal, is what I would be saying if we didn't want the engagement. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Chris Reynolds, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist. I'm asking you to continue the conversation about opera with an all-white roster of panelists. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with the star of Tapestry Opera's Song d'Hiver*, soprano Mireille Asselin. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and the return of Weston Williams. Join us.